Okay, the reading is from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. The resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Um, as John said, it's, uh, we always, uh, it's always Resurrection Sunday in some, at some level, isn't it? Um, that's why we gather together. Um, but today is, obviously, uh, Easter, the most important day of the Christian calendar. Um, I think uh, culturally it probably feels more like uh, Christmas is, uh, but no one would be celebrating Christmas uh, without Easter. And so this is easily uh, our most important day um, of the year. Um, we're going to really just look through uh, the John chapter 20. So if you have uh, your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We will... Um, uh, the first 10 verses were read for us this morning, but we're going to um, look at the entire chapter um, as, we, as we make our way through it this morning. So, um, One of my uh, favorite movies was la of last year, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Marvel Universe. Any Marvel fans? Yeah, right. So um, what, one of my favorite of those was Black Panther. Um, it's... Uh, I'm not a big go-to-a-movie-twice kind of guy, um, but I went, I went and saw that one twice, um, mainly to take my daughter the second time. So that's great if you have kids. Uh, you can go see with your wife on a date, and then you have to take your teenage daughter, and you're like, well, I got to go, gotta go again. So uh, you get to double dip a little bit. So, um, but one of, the, one of the favorite parts of that movie, um, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet, um, is when Black Panther comes back to life. Right? He comes back to life. And having been considered dead, he appears to his loyal followers, his supporters, including the mighty women of Wakanda, and who all declare with hope and joy, he lives. And then this great battle ensues, and a new mission follows. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? He lives, changes everything. Um, some people are kind of frustrated with this, this motif in, in superhero movies, uh, which has appeared a, a lot recently, not just in Black Panther, uh, Superman, Batman, Captain America, this kind of theme of a resurrection, uh, of a resurrected savior, 
Um, and one popular writer expresses the frustration of some. He says this, he says, we can willfully accept people from other planets punching giant robots or mutants so powerful that they can destroy universes. But coming back from the great beyond is a bit too far-fetched. Too far-fetched. But what if someone did come back from the dead? Not just in a comic book, not just in some fantasy world, not a superhero fictional story, but in our world right here on earth in a real tangible way. Someone who was definitely dead, laid in a tomb for days. And then the Spirit of God brings them back having defeated death and the grave. What if it's true? <laughs> um, one writer actually said, if Jesus' resurrection isn't true, if it's a hoax, which, by the way, if it was a hoax, that is going miraculously well. <laughs> that is like the greatest hoax ever, right? Um, but it, if it is a hoax, then you don't have to listen to anything that Jesus says. He, he's some kind of just crazy madman. He's just a, 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 a lunatic. So this idea that, oh, well, Jesus was a good person, uh, he was a good teacher, um, he, he didn't really raise from the dead, he wasn't really the son of God, but he was a good person, so should we follow his example? Well, who else would you say that to that claimed to be the son of God uh, and claimed that he rose from the dead? We don't go, oh, that's a, a reasonable person that we should follow their example. You'd say, no, that, that guy needs to, be, you know, be committed. <laughs> that person's crazy. And so let's look at the account of the resurrection. We're going to look at John's. Um, we get four different accounts in, in the Gospels, but uh, we're going to just kind of focus in on John's this morning. And so um, John describes the early Christians' discovery of the resurrection, and in describing it, um, he's going to do a few things. Firstly, he's going to give evidence of the resurrection, um, and, and it's not given in a, in a kind of propositional format, but proofs are kind of dropped all throughout the narrative, all throughout the story. Intricate detail is, is uh, given to really establish the historical facts of what happened, um, of the resurrection. Um, but then also what we see John do is really focus in on the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus is all throughout this chapter. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene first, a woman with a dark history. Then to his disciples, nearly all who had abandoned him, who had fled when it he, when he came time for the crucifixion. And then to Thomas, um, who is pretty skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical this morning. But grace and the evidence of God's grace is everywhere. And so my hope this morning is that you will allow the evidence to build your faith, whether you're a believer or not, um, that his grace would um, soften our hearts, would change our hearts. And then uh, just like in Wakanda, uh, for us that are followers of Jesus, his mission would consume our life. And so uh, let's look at these kind of four scenes that we see in this chapter. First one, we're going to look at the empty tomb. This is what uh, uh, Joy uh, read for us, the first 10 verses. Um, and notice uh, when it starts off, Jesus uh, promised uh, that he would die and on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But notice it doesn't start off uh, it, uh, saying that this took place on the third day. It says, on the first day. 
And that's significant. Why is that significant? Because the writers are indicating a shift here. Something new has happened. It's the dawning of a new creation. And so John, as he's writing this account, looking back, remembering, wants us to see something new has come. Sunday was the first day of the week. And on Sabbath, on the Saturday, Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest. And so this is what we see Jesus doing. He's resting in the tomb. And from this time on, the first day of the week becomes the day that believers had set aside to worship. We see the day shift from Saturday, from a Jewish Sabbath, to a Sunday, to the Lord's Day, to Resurrection Day, Resurrection Sunday. We see this in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 16. Because we celebrate the resurrection. And so every Sunday is a mini Easter. It's why we gather, to celebrate the resurrection. And maybe you're here this morning and say, listen, I can't believe in a resurrection because those things just don't happen. Well, exa- exactly. <laughs> that, that's the point. This thing never happens. It's only happened twice. That's not true. It happened like 502 times. So they were given an example of. But we know two people, Lazarus, who Jesus resurrects from the dead, and Jesus himself. And so this is a dawning of a new creation. Something radical has happened. And so we see in verse 3, um, as they're running, or, or, sorry, in verse 1, they're running early while it was still dark. Um, so this is early morning. This is a theme in John, darkness and light. Mary Magdalene and the others are going to go from a darkened understanding to the truth of the light. And the other gospels indicate that other women were with her. With her. This is uh, she... Uh, this is the we that refers to in verse uh, in chapter two. We do not know where they have laid him. And so after they seeing the stone rolled away, she gets Peter and John, and she says, "They have taken my Lord. They've taken him away." She's worried about grave robbers, which would have been common in that day, um, or she's maybe worried about the desecration of Jesus's body. But notice what she's not anticipating. What she's not anticipating is a resurrection. She goes, sees that Jesus is gone, and thinks someone's taken his body. They've moved him. She wasn't anticipating a resurrection, and we'll see, neither were the disciples. A lot of people say, listen, these are primitive people. These are gullible, first century people. They're not enlightened as we are. They didn't have science. We modern people can't believe in in these miracles Uh, like these people might have been so gullible to do. But these people weren't any ready to receive a miracle of resurrection any more than we modern people are today. Perhaps maybe even less so. Notice no one is saying, hey, it's the third day. Maybe we should go back and have a look. Oh, the tomb is empty. Oh, just as Jesus said. Yeah, he's resurrected. It's all true. Even Even with an empty tomb, they're like, oh, someone's moved the body. They still don't see Then later we see them hiding. This doesn't look like gullible guys ready to believe everything. As we'll see even with Thomas, these are skeptical people who need some proof. And so if you're here today um, needing proof and skeptic, well, join the ranks. Even Jesus' closest followers, disciples who heard him teach three years in a row, 
seeing and witnessing miracles, experiencing miracles, still weren't ready for a resurrection. So the ladies even, um, why are they going to the tomb in the first place? Um, they're going to the tomb. More, uh, we see in, in, in other passages in the scripture, they're going really with spices to anoint Jesus' body. They spent a lot of money on these spices. They wouldn't have been cheap. You don't spend all that money and then go to a tomb to care for a body that you don't expect to be there. They expected him to be there. Luke says that uh, when, the rep- when the report was relayed, these things seemed like, uh, like an idle tale. <laughs> Luke chapter 24, verse 11. They go and they tell him, and they're like, this seems like some kind of idle tale. Maybe these you know, women are a bit hysterical and emotional in their grief. These people were just as skeptical as modern man. Greek and Ro- the Greeks and the Romans didn't believe in, in resurrection. Um, they believed actually that you needed to be separated from your body, uh, that the spirit and uh, the physical needed to be separated. They didn't um, believe that those things would come back together. Um, Jewish people did believe in a final resurrection. Some of them, the Sadducees didn't. Um, but they believed a final resurrection when the entire world would be resurrected together, not, indivi- not an individual, personal, bodily res- resurrection of one person in the middle of history. And beyond that, no Jew was ready to worship a man as God. That is blasphemy, as they do. And for the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks to believe in the resurrection of Jesus meant that it cost them something. It meant being separated from your family. It, it, it meant being shunned. It involved a great deal of personal sacrifice. Um, I was challenged by that um, just last week, being in Turkey. Um, uh, there with an Acts 29, speaking at their conference and, and doing some pastor training. And um, there's about 120 um, Christians, Turks, church leaders in the room. And uh, one of the guys who was uh, leading it asked them, how many of you are from an Islamic family? And I'd say about 90% of them raised their hand. Um, it cost them something. They've lost family. <laughs> They've lost jobs. They've suffered financially. They get harassed constantly. Um, as we were leaving um, the, uh, the conference, it was over. And, but I had noticed there was a lot of police there, like army, armed kind of people. They were eating lunch in the hotel with us and things like that, which I kind of thought was odd. I thought, well, maybe it's just a popular, you know, place for the cops. They have good donuts or something. I don't know. Or, um, and so I asked him on the way out, said, hey, why all these police and stuff? Why are they always at this hotel? And he just kind of looked at me like, you idiot. They're here for you. <laughs> and then it kind of dawned on me. It's like, oh, yeah. He's like, we had to tell them we were here. Um, you can't gather this many Christians, uh, especially with Western, you know, pastors coming in. Um, so they were there for our protection. On Sunday, they meet with armed guards at the door. It cost them something. And that's different for us because uh, whilst it is changing, whilst we do see people having to pay a price now um, for, th- for their belief in Jesus, we saw that with athletes um, losing their job, expressing their faith. Um, for us, it probably doesn't cost what it cost these disciples. 
And so in verse 3, we have uh, Peter goes out with the other disciple. They're going toward the tomb. We have more than uh, a few people here. Um, you have the presence of two witnesses, which was su- sufficient for submitting evidence in, in Jewish law. So here we have two, James and John. And it's funny that both witnesses are running. There's more running in these couple, couple verses than all the rest of the Gospels combined. Lots of running happening on Easter mo- morning. And it, and it says, uh, Peter went out, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, which is awesome that he's throwing shade at Peter <laughs> in the Scripture. He's like the other disciple. That's him, by the way. That's John. He, also, he, he often refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's like, I'm just going to record in history for eternity that I was faster than Peter. I beat him to the... Like, what is... Why is that detail there? Other than if you were just telling it how it was. This is what happened. Now... Peter gets him back in a minute because Peter's more bold and goes into the tomb first. John gets there first, but he's kind of timid and doesn't want to go in. Um, John's younger. Maybe he waits for Peter the elder to get there. John outdoes him in speed, but we see in verses 5 and uh, through 7, Peter outdoes him in boldness. So Peter comes and following him, he goes into the tomb, and he sees these linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which has been on Jesus' head, not lying in the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciples come in, and it says they see and they believed. And again, these details are, are too great, really, for a story to be made up. The fact that Jesus' linen cloths are lying there shows the body isn't stolen. If you're going to steal a body... You're not going to take time to unwrap the body, are you? You're just going to take the body and and get out of there before you're found out. This is guarded by the Roman guards. You're not going to take time to unwind Jesus' linen cloths. Would have taken a while to do that. And then his face cloth is folded up and placed separately. If you're stealing a body... Even if you're like, okay, let's unwrap them real quick. You're not taking time to fold things up. More than likely, Jesus passes through. We see him in a, in a minute. Jesus in his resurrected state is the same, but he's also different. At times, he's a, they recognize him, but not, not quite at first. He passes through locked doors. Jesus is... Uh, able to do things in his, his resurrected body. And so more than likely, he passes through this linen cloth and he folds up what is around his head. If you remember when Lazarus is resurrected, Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes. He, he needs help. He's got to be unwound like a mummy. So more than likely, he passes through his clothes when he awakens from death and he leaves him behind. This is quite the vivid detail, isn't it? Not really the, the kind of thing you'd make up. It just bears the kind of testimony of an eyewitness. And we see in verse 8, Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, that's John, also goes in and he saw and believed. For as yet they, had not, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. He sees and he believes, which is this theme in John. Seeing and believing. But later Jesus would say, blessed are those who have not seen but believe. We'll come to that. The disciples don't have this robust faith yet. 
It's still developing. They're still trying to understand the scriptures. It doesn't seem that Peter does yet. In Luke 24, 12, we read that Peter went away wondering to himself what happened. He hasn't quite figured it out yet. They're still growing in their understanding of what is to be revealed for them. They didn't understand the scriptures yet. Later, by the Spirit's help and Jesus' own teaching in Luke 24, they're able to understand the scripture through a Christ-centered lens. They start to understand that all of the scripture is about Jesus. All the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, the temple, the kings, the throne, all of these themes, these strands that we see all throughout the Old Testament pointing to Jesus himself. So when it says they didn't understand the scripture, it's not referring to one single scripture or one single passage, but the entire scope of scripture. So the resurrection would change the way that they understood the scripture. And it should change the way that we understand the Bible as well. We look and we read the scripture through the same lens of a resurrected Jesus. All of these um, passages. If you were here on, on Friday night, if, uh, if you noticed, so many of the, of the scriptures that we read on Friday night were from the Old Testament. Pointing to this episode of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So they return to their homes. They're trying to put all of this together. N.T. Wright says it this way. At one level, they continued puzzlement. the continued puzzlement of the disciples is a mark of the story's authenticity. If someone had been making it up a generation later, as some people have suggested, they would hardly have had such a muddle going on. More particularly, nobody would have made up the remarkable detail of the cloth around Jesus' head folded up in a place by itself, or even the more extraordinary fact that Jesus is not immediately recognized, either here in the evening on the road to Emmaus or when cooking breakfast by the shore. Surely you'd want to authenticate. We recognize Jesus right away because it was him. But there's not. There's confusion. The first Christians weren't prepared for what actually happened. Nobody could have been. As one leading agnostic scholar has put it, it looks as though they were struggling to describe something for which they didn't have adequate language. And how could you have adequate language for, for a resurrection, for something that you hadn't experienced? So there's a lot of puzzlement going on. But one thing is for sure, that tomb is empty. He gone. So how do you account for an empty tomb? How do you account, account for... The guy who is dead isn't here anymore. The disciples stole the body. Jesus didn't die. He swooned. Jesus had a twin. Everybody's hallucinating. They're enthusiasts. His opponents stole the body. All of these things have serious problems. John just wants to ask us the question, why not just believe the account? Why not just believe what's recorded? That God raised Jesus from the dead, physically, bodily. Like it actually happened. Later on in the book of Acts, we're asked the question, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises, raises the dead? You think of all the miracles that Jesus did. If God is who he says he is, one who has literally breathed creation into existence, spoke all that we know of the material universe into existence, well, a little resurrection isn't a big deal, is it? Scene two, then, um, we get the first evangelist, Mary Magdalene. Let's, uh, let's read verse 11. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So all the disciples go, but Mary stays. 
And she stays weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Again, just, you can, just, can you just sense the disbelief of what's happening? I'm going to check one more time, <laughs> you know? Um, this week I was looking for a book in the office, never did find it. I think one of you might have had it. So if you have my book called The Resurrection by Fleming Rutledge, I want it back. <laughs> all right? I couldn't find it. And uh, so I was looking in all the different bookshelves we have back there, one of them in John's office. And I came back in like another time looking through. He's like, you think it's going to be there this time? <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know. I just need to check again. Maybe I missed it, right? It's that same thing like I'm going to just check one more time. Maybe he's in there and we missed it. It's just uh, disbelief. And so she checks one more time. But she sees two angels, verse 12, in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not where they have laid him. Again, still doesn't believe he's resurrected. She's still like, they've taken him somewhere. That's the only explanation. Having said this, she turned around. Oh, sorry, I missed verse 13, critical verse. Um, No, verse 14. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. This is is significant. Mary becomes the first evangelist, the first to tell people of the resurrection. He repeats her name fully, Mary Magdalene, in verse 18, to emphasize her identity. The first Easter message addressed by Christ to this apostolic circle was discharged by a woman, a female disciple who without doubt was formerly the great sinner that we know about, a prostitute. She was uh, previously enslaved by demons. Here this great sinner is the recipient of these particular graces, three of them. She sees angels, she's the first to see the risen Christ, and she's the first to proclaim that Jesus was risen. And this is what God does. This is what he's done for you and me, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he turns great sinners into new creations. He turns us into great evangelists. If the disciples had fabricated the account, there's no way they would have told Mary Magdalene for a couple of reasons. One, she was a woman, as most Marys are. According to the Mishnah, Jewish law, a woman's evidence wasn't admissible in court. Celsus, who was a Greek pagan philosopher of the second century who opposed Christianity, here was one of his main arguments. He said, one of the reasons we know that it can't be true is that it's based on the testimony of a woman. We all know women are hysterical. Celsus called it the gossip of women about the empty tomb. Why did he say that? Because in ancient cultures, women were marginalized. Women go, ancient cultures? More so, right? More so. 
they weren't, their testimony wasn't admissible in court. They were dismissed as being, you know, hysterical and just empty gossip. And what does Jesus do? He appears to Mary first. As we read throughout uh, the, the scripture, uh, the book of Acts, as we see the epistles, Christianity really establishes the flourishing of women in the ancient world, where women were marginalized, they were used, um, they didn't really have any kind of rights, they were, you know, second class. But Jesus comes, he treats men and women as equal as they are, equal of value, equal of worth. We're different. She's also in play, uh, enslaved by demons, secondly. According to Luke chapter 2, she was possessed by seven demons. So if you're going to make up a story in this time, you're not going to pick a woman, and certainly not one who is demon-possessed, as your key eyewitness. Yet in the gospel account, Mary Magdalene heads the list. The only reason to include her is if it was actually her, and this is how the story actually happened. So here is this grace for the enslaved. Mary had her own demons, addictions. And some of that's your story. A sordid past, a dark past. Maybe not actual demons, but we all have our kind of demons, don't we, of our past. We all have addictions. And here's Jesus who completely changes her. Why did Mary stay at the grave? We don't know for sure, but perhaps it was because her grief had just kept her back there. She didn't want to leave. We're told that for whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. Mary had been forgiven much. She loved Jesus. Maybe she was hoping someone would enlighten her about the absence of his body. It's in that moment she sees these two angels in white, and their presence demonstrates that God had been at work. The empty tomb can only be explained as an invasion of God's power. God is not bound by physics, uh, by the laws of physics. He's not bound by biology. He speaks and molecules obey. Light replaces darkness. Life replaces death. Love replaces hate. But Mary is still struggling to believe in the resurrection. She's still stuck with her thought that someone's taken him. And so enter Jesus in verse 14. And she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Um, It might not have been fully light yet. It was still dark. She might have had her back. It says that she turned toward Jesus. Um, Most likely, like other times after the resurrection, sometimes they don't recognize Jesus right away. He's recognizable, but apparently different. Maybe more youthful, certainly more glorious, and certainly not as disfigured as he would have been as he came off of the cross. And so there's a tension here. On the one hand, the risen Christ is touched. He bears the marks of his infliction, of his wounds. He cooks fish and he eats it. And yet at times he's not recognizable immediately. He even passes through doors and linen cloths apparently. And so his resurrection shows us that we will be changed in our resurrection bodies. Not totally different, but new. And he answered these important questions. Why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? The first question conveys the love and affection of Jesus. He cares about her tears. He cares that she's crying. And he cares about your tears this morning as well. His death and resurrection was for you. It's for you personally. Not just mankind in general, but for you. But he's also saying that, uh, that, hey, this isn't a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. And here's where the Gospels end differently than all these previous books about heroic characters. Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But the Gospels end with Jesus' resurrection. Funeral, 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 party. And it transforms our view of death, right? It doesn't end, even as, as, uh, as us as believers, funerals are a time of lament. They are a time to weep, and there's appropriate in that. But our, our weeping has a, a, a joy that underlines it, a, a resurrection to rejoice in. It can turn our mourning into dancing, our sorrow into joy. And the second question addresses what kind of Messiah she's seeking. As grand as her devotion was, her estimate of him was far too small, the D.A. Carson notes. She was devoted to him, but still didn't understand. Still was expecting to find him dead. And he calls her by her name, Mary. John 10 says that Jesus knows his sheep by name. He knows your name this morning. And notice Mary knows his voice. The shepherd knows his sheep by name, and the sheep know the shepherd's voice. In verse 16, it says that she clings to him as a child hugging her loving parents after they've been gone for a long time. She's clinging on to him. And notice Jesus says, hey, you don't have to cling to me. I haven't ascended yet. It's, it's a gentle rebuke, it, basically saying, listen, I'm not going anywhere right now. It's, this isn't the time for, you know, sentimental, sentimentalities. It's a time for joy. It's a time for action. It's a time to announce the good news. And so Mary has this great legacy for us, the first evangelist. Matthew Henry describes her that says she became an apostle to the apostles. And this is what Jesus does. He offers us new life, not some bit of advice for self-improvement. He changes us as he changed Mary. Maybe you have a past of abuse, a physical, sexual, emotional abuse, or some type of enslavement, addiction, demonic bondage, sinful relationships. Is there hope for a change in that? Absolutely. You don't have to look any further than Mary Magdalene. And so let the Savior's grace change our heart this morning. The other thing that we see in his conversation with her is that Jesus, the resurrection, creates a new family. Notice the language that he uses. He says, my father and your father, my God and your God. It's a distinction in terms of Jesus' relationship with the Father and ours. 
He doesn't just say our Father and our God because he is uniquely the Son of God. He says my Father and your Father. And apart from the resurrection, not only do we don't really have any reason to preach, we really have no reason to gather here. It's the resurrection that changes us into a family. We would just be a a club or any any other organization without the resurrection. But because of it, we're truly united together as brothers and sisters, as God is our Father, as Jesus is our elder brother. Jesus has given us this glorious inheritance. He's brought us and adopted us into this family through his death and his resurrection. And Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, even though he is ascending to the throne. We, we uh, read that great scene that John sees in the future of the lamb that was slain on the throne. But he calls us brothers and his sisters, even when we fail him. He's called them servants. He's called them disciples. He's even called them friends up until this point. But now, Jesus calls those who abandon him brothers. Go and tell my brothers. That's grace upon grace. I'm not sure if I'd want to call the people who abandoned me in my worst moment brothers. And yet, Jesus does. What mercy upon mercy. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, Hebrews 2.12 says. It goes on in Hebrews 2. It says that he made us like his brothers in every respect. God has made us like our elder brother Jesus. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of a son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers, Romans 8.29 says. What incredible, isn't it? Jesus isn't just some distant God. He's your God. Jesus says, you are my brothers. You are my sisters. We are his family, and it's a miracle of his grace. John, in John 13, actually says this is how the world would know that we belong to Jesus, is by our love for one another as brothers and sisters. We're to love one another. This is the, the new covenant that Jesus establishes. Everyone's longing for community. Everyone's longing for belonging. And yes, you can find friendship in many other places. But the church is the one place that we don't choose our friends, that God chooses them for us. He chooses the community as he unites us to himself. It's many why we talk about church as family and not as an institution. And it's familial. It's not just personal. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me in a family with Jesus. Scene three, then, is this new mission that we get empowered onto. Um, Verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So notice they're still fearful. They're still afraid. They're in hiding. So they're, they're in this room the doors being locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I think that's kind of cool. Terrified, huddled, hidden, locked up, 
And then Jesus just kind of shows up and was like, hey, peace. (laughs) When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, understatement, when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is John's great commission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness for any, it is withheld. More grace here, right? Despite turning away from Jesus at the cross, to whom does Jesus appear? The very people who betrayed him, his disciples. And he either miraculously, miraculously passes through the door. No big deal. He's done it, done it before. And he says, peace be with you. It's peace. This peace be with you is the counterpart to it is finished on Good Friday. The work has been accomplished for us in it is finished. And so now, because of that, grace and peace can be imparted to us. And his disciples are glad. This is what grace does. This is what the peace of God does. It makes you glad. It, it gladdens our hearts. Christians should be the most gladful people, even in lament. And there is a place for that. That's why we gathered on Friday night. Not a lot of gladness on Friday night. We're entering into lament. But lament is basically Christians grieving, even, even taking complaints to the Lord. But lament is a journey, right? We do that. We, we bring our complaints. We bring our heavy-heartedness. We bring our tough questions to the Lord in lament that leads us to a new place, a place of trust. This is the journey that they've gone through. They're lamenting, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that lamenting leads to gladness. Good Friday becomes Easter Sunday. And and then he tells them that they have a mission. Instead of being thrown off the team, they're actually going to lead the mission. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Throughout John, Jesus is referred to as the sent one. God is ascending God. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. And now we, being given the Spirit, are sent into the world. So John 17, 18, he says, Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And so the call for the disciples and for us is to live like Jesus as a missionary in the world. Jesus was separated from sin, but he's not isolated from sinners. He was in this world on mission, not of the world. And that's how we are to be. As he is sent, that's how we are sent. Jesus doesn't separate himself from the world. He actually says that he is a friend of sinners. And that's good news because that's us. That's, that's you and me. We're all sinners. Jesus doesn't look down his, his, his nose self-righteously, although he was the only person on earth who was justified to do that. He takes someone like a Mary Magdalene or a Peter, and he says, you're my friend, <laughs> You're my brother, you're my sister. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then he sends us on that same mission. And so if you're a Christian this morning, God has sent you into the world as his ambassadors, just as he did with Mary, to make the good news known. 
that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, that this changes everything. Yes, our bodies will rise in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so in light of that hope that we have and the mission that we have, let us not waste our lives, but let us pour out our lives on mission. That doesn't mean we all have to like, be missionaries in the formal kind of sense of the word, but we are all, if you're a follower of Jesus, tasked on mission. So whether you're a teacher or a doctor or a stay-at-home parent, um, whether you're young, whether you're old, in good health or, or in poor, whatever our lot is in life, God has given us that for the cause of his mission. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus breathes on them. In the Garden of Eden, God breathes life into our parents, Adam and Eve. And here we are reminded that he breathes spiritual life into us as well. The mission that he's sending this on is an impossible mission on our own. You and I don't have the power to do that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But we're told it's the same power, the same spirit that you have residing in you is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that's pretty good because Jesus has asked me to do some hard stuff, never coming back from the dead yet. Uh, And so I know that if he can do that, everything else he's asked me to do, I'm empowered to do. So this receiving the Holy Spirit, is, it's, it's best understood as really a foretaste of what would happen on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is when they're filled with the Spirit from then on. These disciples had, had seen the miracles, they had sat under the greatest teaching, and yet they still needed something. They still needed power. They needed to be empowered. They're not left to themselves, you and I aren't left to ourselves to live, uh, to follow the way of Jesus as we're looking at currently um, to live in obedience to him, but also to fulfill his mission on our own. We have to have the Spirit's power. This idea is not that the church or individual Christians have the ability to forgive sins, right? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. Now, we're, no, we're told in the Scripture that only Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So what is he on about here? There's a passive voice denoting God is acting in this. It's only God forgives, but it's our job to proclaim that forgiveness to anyone, to everyone. This is what we hold out to the world, the good news of Jesus, forgiveness of sins. Most people probably, when we think about our life before God, tend to think of it on a scale, right? Maybe somebody like Mother Teresa on one side and Hitler on the other. And we're like, okay, I'm probably somewhere in between here right? I want to try to live my life as good and as kindly as I can. But that's not how it works. God doesn't really grade on a, on a curve. He doesn't grade on a scale. You're either unrighteous or you're declared righteous. And all of us begin unrighteous because of our sinful state. And so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with our sin, our rebellion against God? We're going to try to pay God back. We're going to try to earn our forgiveness somehow. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes it really clear that that's impossible because it's why Jesus had to die, to make a way for us to be reconciled, for our sin to be taken care of, to be paid for. 
But in this moment then, God gives us his righteousness. He pays the penalty that you and I were required to pay. And he gives us the righteousness that we could never earn on our own. The psalmist asks it this way, if you kept a record of sin, O God, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We may revere Jesus, that we may revere God, because it is him who forgives. He blots out our record of sin. It says he, he chooses not to remember. He, as far as the east is from the west, is as far as our sins are. There's forgiveness in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. And that's what we hold out to the world. That's what's being held out to you today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today forgiveness is available to you. That you might then receive resurrection life. That brings us to the very last scene. One that gives me a lot of hope. Um, Doubting Thomas. Kind of a bummer of a nickname. Um... That's, that, that's what he was known for. But let's read the account. It says now, this is verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So they're all huddled up, locked in this room, but Thomas wasn't with them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, he's got a, a decent, healthy sense of skepticism. He's like, listen, unless it's the same guy who went into the tomb, that came out of the tomb, I'm not buying it. I'm not having it. I want to see the evidence. I want to see the proof. I want to see those, those nail scars. I want to see where the spear pierced him. And if I can't see it and touch those things, forget it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This is the first time in John that anybody's ever looked at Jesus and called him God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What kind of doubt did, did, did he have? There's various kinds and patterns of doubt, isn't there? Some doubt is grounded in one's moral preferences and desires, right? So some don't want to believe. To inter- they don't want belief to interfere with their choices, sexual preferences, uh, what they have to do with their time, money, whatever. So they start doubting everything theologically. I don't want this thing to be true and have to mess with me, so I'm going to doubt everything else. Though the doubt's really driven by kind of personal and moral desires. Some doubt stems from a thousand small choices over time. Unfortunately, I've seen this in the 20-some-odd years of ministry, right? You might have a spouse who begins to drift away from God slowly, gradually. And 20 years later, he finds himself in bed with another woman. He's lonely, he's disconnected, and he says, you know what? I never believed any of that rubbish anyway. There's a doubt, but it just comes from a slow moral drift. 
Some doubts triggered by confrontations with other people. Students who go to university, they're not prepared to answer objections or questions, and it can lead them to doubt. I have a crisis of faith. Some doubt is the result of just ignorance, right? Some people just haven't been taught. They don't know. They've never heard. That's probably increasingly the case with people who have no religious affiliation these days, right? This kind of new secularism. They're not necessarily hostile to the gospel. They just don't have any real belief about anything. They just don't know what they believe and don't really seem to care. But what kind of doubt was Thomas struggling with? Thomas's doubt is really the result of massive religious disappointment. He wasn't a philosophical materialist, right? The only thing that matters is, is matter. He's Jewish, so he, he's, he believes in miracles. But he's crushed because all of his hopes seem to die with Jesus and get buried in that tomb. He's pinning all of his hopes on Jesus, and, it, and in his mind, it, it, this is all gone now. Jesus, he's, he's dead. He kind of felt like he got snookered, right? And so this is why he's like, hey, unless it's the same guy that went into the tomb that comes out of the tomb, forget it. And anything worth believing is worth questioning. So Thomas gets a bad rap, but I'm not sure any of us would react any differently. He's got his own decisions to make, like all of us do, right? He doesn't say, well, the, the other 10 of you guys uh, have all said and believe it, so yeah, I'll just go along. I'll just go along with, uh, with whatever you say. He's got a decision that he has to make for himself. And it's the decision that you and I have to make today. And verse 28 strikes me. Eight days later. Imagine that. Imagine being Thomas. Mary sees Jesus almost immediately after the resurrection. He appears to the other disciples but Thomas has to wait over a week. I can't imagine what that week must have been like. I'm sure it would have been depressing, right? I mean, he can't be alive, is he? I mean, what kind of Messiah dies on a cross? The guy's supposed to be our king. But he did seem to appear to people I trust, and he did say a lot of remarkable things, and I just thought maybe they were metaphors. <laughs> the internal struggle that he must have had going on. This doubt, this depression, no doubt. And yet Jesus appears to him and he pronounces peace. And Jesus meets each of these people that we see in their condition and he transforms them. Mary gets turned from enslaved to an evangelist, the other disciples from fearful to fearless, and Thomas from doubter to a devoted missionary. So according to church history, Thomas dies in India, martyred in India as the first missionary. All of these people see the resurrected Jesus, believe it's him so much that they're willing to go to their very death for what they believe. Um, there's an American historian who became a Christian. He's involved in politics, and he said, what made me believe in the resurrection was Watergate. If you remember the Watergate scandal, he's like, there were 12 men, and they couldn't keep a secret 
um, for, for more than a week on this scandal. And he's like, you expect me to believe that there were 12 men who made up some kind of fabricated story and then got scattered all over the earth and all of them independent of one another decided that they were going to take that all the way to their death? He's like, no way. He's like, if the most powerful person in the world and, and, and some of the most powerful people around him in the presidency, they couldn't keep a secret over a lie, there's no way that this account can't be true. <laughs> and here we have one of the greatest confessions of the deity of Jesus in the New Testament. Thomas looks at him and he says, my Lord and my God. We have echoes to the very beginning of how this book started. God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. He makes this confession that Jesus is God. And it's a confession that we have to make. It's a confession that we make to enter into the Christian life. That Jesus is who he says he is. But it's also a daily confession that you and I have to make as believers. That Jesus is God. And that that has an implication in our life. So let's not distance ourselves from the Jesus of the text. Every day we have to bow down like Thomas and say to the living God, my Lord and my God. And he offers grace for anyone who will believe. Though Jesus appears before over 500 people, we're told, millions, the most, most of the Christians, all of the Christians alive today haven't seen Jesus. And yet here Jesus says that we are at no disadvantage. We're at no disadvantage. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. You could enter your name into that. Blessed are you if you believe, even though you haven't seen. The very purpose of John's book, look at verse 30, as we'll finish. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's life now, life abundant, but also life after death, eternal life. And so the choice is ours again this morning as it is moment by moment in our life. What do we do with Jesus? Is this account true and real? And if it is, what are the implications of that for my life? And so this morning, I hope the evidence has built your faith. Maybe if you don't have a faith, today would be that day that it's built your faith that Jesus is who he is. I hope it also, we allow the grace of Jesus to change our heart. And we would love him more deeply as, the, as uh, we see the disciples doing here. And I hope, as the disciples did, because of the resurrection, that this mission would consume our, our life. My Lord and my God, there is none like you. He was wounded for our transgressions, removing our guilt and judgment. And because he was wounded, he can sympathize with our wounds now. He was wounded and crushed, but rises victoriously over death. He is weak no more. And so he now gives us power and hope to all who are wounded in this life. And he will and is making all things new.
That's the promise of the resurrection. It's why we fill this place with flowers, a symbol of new life, of growth, that, that spring, that life comes after the bleak dark of winter. That's the promise that we can claim this morning. And so that's my hope for you. If you're a Christian this morning, that this would renew your faith once again, that we would stop and look afresh at who Jesus is and the reason why we call him Christ, the reason why we call him Lord, the reason why we call him God, and that we would follow him on mission, a life that leads to flourishing, that leads to our gladness, to our joy, and, and to life eternal. And that today might be the day of belief if you're not a follower of Jesus. And today, all you have to do is make the same confession that Thomas did. My Lord, my God. And that's enough. We recognize we have to turn from our own ways. We can't live life on our own. That we would literally die in our own kind of slavery and sin. And that Jesus is the only way to rescue us from that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for miracles. We thank you for um, the resurrection of Jesus, that you are a God who is not bound by the laws of physics. You're not bound by death. You're not, you don't experience time linear, uh, in a linear way. You stand outside of space and time, that you are completely sovereign and independent. And so that death has no sway over you, as it does us, the reality is that all of us will one day face our death. Um, but Father, I pray that we would be able to face that with great joy and great hope, knowing that it is not the end, but merely the beginning of a life with you, of new life. And so, Father, today, as we come to the table, as we receive bread and wine, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, the very means of our salvation... Um, may our souls be filled with hope once again. May today be the day of salvation for those who don't believe. Amen. Um, will you stand with me? Um, we're going to celebrate and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus in the way that we do every week um, by taking bread. Um, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you by dipping it in wine, a symbol of Jesus' blood shed for you. Um, and we can take that, and in, in, in some ways we take it in the same way that they approach the tomb with heavy-heartedness, sadness that Jesus had to do that on our behalf. But we walk away from that table having the taste of bread and wine in our mouth and with glad hearts, with rejoicing hearts, and because the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, um, and he brings us into that new eternal life with him. And so let's come this morning um, as we celebrate.